Good morning, everyone. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are in 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 21 today, where God commands us to fear Him. Yes, I said fear. And you're going to see today why you need to fear God, why you need to live in the fear of God. Sad but true and kind of strange, but if you're anything like me, as soon as you heard the word fear and God in the same sentence, you started to redefine the word fear. Oh, that's honor, reverence, awe, but not fear. I'm one of those that say if the Bible says it, we're going to go with it. Mike Iaconelli says this, I would like to suggest that the church become a place of terror again. A place where God continually has to tell us, fear not. A place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or doctrine or theology. It is God's burning presence in our lives. I am suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust, burns our sin into ashes, and strips us naked to reveal the real person within. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence except us. Nothing. Including our plans, our agendas, our priorities, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. So today we're going to see why we need to live in the fear of God. So please stand with me if you are able, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 21. This is God's word. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. During the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today as a people in community, interconnected, not going solo, not islands, but people who are a part of families and communities, and most importantly, if we know you through Christ, your church. Lord, I ask that you would reveal yourself again to us today, that we would see your glory afresh today. Lord, that you would set us free from the grids and lenses and assumptions that we bring to your word so that we would see you as you really are, as you have revealed yourself in your word to us. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, through your word, you would change us, that you would transform us, and that you would rearrange anything you want to be rearranged. Lord, may you increase and we decrease. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I'm pretty sure that when you think of all the reasons and motivations that are um, av available to you to obey God, all the reasons you could say, I need to obey God, fear is probably not one of those reasons that come to your mind first and foremost. My guess is that fear is way down the list if it's even on the list at all. There are the obvious reasons why we should obey God. First and foremost, you want to please God and show your love for Him. 
Jesus says this in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You want to please God and show your love for him. You want to have a clear conscience before God and man. That's a reason to obey God. You want to be used by God for his glory. That is a huge reason to obey God. You want people to come to faith in Christ as a result of hearing the gospel and observing your life and realizing that those two things aren't canceling themselves out, but they actually dovetail. That's a reason to want to obey God. But also in Scripture, what we see is fearing God is a reason to obey God. We clearly see the fear of the Lord in Scripture. Jeremiah 10, verse 7 says, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? That is your due. For all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Psalm 34 says, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Psalm 89, In the counsel of the holy ones of God, he is greatly feared. Psalm 76, You, O God, are responsible Splendent with light. You alone are to be feared. We come in here today with all sorts of fears. Some of us have grown up with certain fears. I talked a couple weeks ago about spiders and snakes and, and things like this. And sometimes we are afraid of, you know, bullies and airplanes and meteorites and tornadoes and earthquakes and things like that. But the Bible says that God alone is to be feared. Isaiah 8 says, do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Then you come to Job. If you could think of anyone who suffered more, you'd you'd think of Job more than any other human. Here's what Job said. He, God, stands alone. Who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. We don't want to think about fear and God in the same sentence. The fear of the Lord, though, Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise, you need to fear God. Peter is writing to suffering Christians. He is writing to them, and he he doesn't tell them, hey, don't fear those that are persecuting you. He doesn't say that. He says, you should fear God who is protecting you. That's what we should be like. Don't fear those who persecute you. Fear God who protects you. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Luke chapter 12. He says, I tell you, my friends... Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You got fear, you got hell, and the children are present. Because these are biblical concepts. These are biblical ideas. First Peter verses the one the first 12 verses of chapter one is all about comforting christians who are being persecuted by telling them about how great a salvation they have assuring them of the amazing gospel truths by which they are saved but then you get to verse 13 and all the way through verse 25 in chapter one it's all about how you live in light of the amazing salvation you have in christ there's a lot of Christians, though, that, that live in a confusion, a, kind of a, a constant state of confusion, kind of like they're living in fog. But I think that every Christian that has suffered will tell you this. Suffering brings clarity. Suffering brings clarity, clarity to the fog that we walk through so often in life. So you come to verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1 and Peter begins laying out four primary commands, imperatives. He's already talking about the indicatives, the first 12 verses, and now he gets the commands out, the imperatives. 
we love three of them. The fourth we have problem with. That's the one we're looking at today. Actually, next week we'll look at, at the fourth one, the third one we have a problem with. The first is this. Fix your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That was in verse 13. Fix your hope, 13 and 14. Fix your hope on God's future grace when Christ returns. We love that. Secondly, be holy in all your behavior. We love it when we understand it. It's not a list of things that we have to check off and say, I'm really holy. But if I'm a Christian, if I put my faith in Christ, then I am being made holy by God. And as I yield to Him, He makes me more like Him. Be holy in all your behavior. Desire the beauty of being like a holy God. So the first two we we love, hope and holiness. Put them together, hope-inspired holiness. We looked at five characteristics of that hope-inspired holiness. Readiness and repentance, responsibility, reverence and reliance on God. But now Peter adds a third motivation for a life of holiness, and we don't like it so much. Fear your heavenly Father. Fear your heavenly Father. Peter has this very appropriate Holy Spirit-inspired fixation on God. He is very God-centered. This led him to highlight God's magnificent grace in these first 12 verses, these indicative graces and, and the peace that we have in Christ. Then he moves on to explain the imperatives, this response that's laid upon us. He's like a good coach, you know, spurring his team on to give it their all. The indicative drives and calls for and enables the imperative. Fix your hope. Be holy. Next week we'll look at loving the brethren deeply. But here he says, conduct yourselves in fear. Conduct yourselves in fear. The Greek verbs here are all aorist, active, imperative, second person plurals. They're imperatives. Specific, definite, decisive choice is being called for. It's like, do this now. Do this at once, one quick action, and then keep doing that. It expresses a note of urgency. It's in the active voice. It pictures the fact that we who are being addressed are the ones that are supposed to be doing this. Conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. Code word for while you're living on earth as a believer. It's sobering to think that as we are sitting here today, there are people around the world literally running for their lives. It hits us deep in our hearts. It it, it causes an anguish in our souls to know that that is happening, especially in the Middle East. People made in God's image, Not not just Christians, but people who need the gospel, that haven't come to faith in Christ, Christians always need the gospel. But their eternity is safe. People whose eternity is not secured, many people made in God's image are being brutally killed as we sit here today. A very, very sobering thought. Atrocities being perpetuated by those with twisted hearts and twisted minds and a twisted worldview. People that are being used by our enemy, the devil, to to deceive and to kill and destroy because they are deceived and they're lost. So people are literally running for their lives in abject fear, right? This moment as we talk, as we talk about the fear of God. I just want you to know the kind of fear that they're experiencing is not the kind of fear we're talking about when we talk about the fear of God. But neither is it this wishy-washy idea that cuts fear in half and makes it just honor or respect or reverence. As if we can kind of slice and dice however we like. What's this fear of God that Peter is referring to? Again, if you're like me, you have probably tried to redefine it already. Some Bible translators redefined it and just said, oh, it's reverence or it's reverent fear. Jeremiah 5.22 says, Should you not fear me, says the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? We're talking about the fear of God. 
it is kind of weird how we're afraid to translate the word fear in the Bible as fear. It says fear. Let's, it's the word fear. It's the Greek word phobos. It means, it's where we get our word phobia. You know, you got your, you know, arachnophobia and snakeophobia and tornadoophobia and all the other phobias you have. Isn't it weird how we are afraid to translate the word fear in the Bible as fear? So we'll call it reverence or awe or honor or respect. And here's the deal. When we do that, we cut down reverence, awe, honor, and respect into something bite-sized for us to understand. Because what we don't realize is it is so far closer to fear than we ever dreamt. I know there's a lot of reasons we do this and there's a lot of things we bring to the table, but it seems like we're desperate for the word fear not to mean fear. A lot of our reasons are somewhat valid, but I just can't get away from taking the Bible at face value. Neither should you. In the, in the Hebrew language, there are three words in the Bible that are translated fear, and they mean reverent fear, terror, and dread, and they're usually translated by the word fear. There are other words in the Hebrew language in the Bible that mean respect, reverence, or honor. They're not translated fear. In Greek, again, the word fear or terror is uh, phobos, and, 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 and it's got a lot of different um, you know, versions, but it's, that's the basic idea, and it's, it's, it means fear. It means terror. There's another word, timao. It means reverence and honor. Um, and now there are times in context where phobos is translated reverence, in fact, in 1 Peter 3.15, when you are giving an answer for the hope that's within you, it says, give it with gentleness and reverence, but it's the word for fear. But then you go to second, uh, the, the second chapter of 1 Peter, chapter 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All three times that fear is used here in chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's phobos. He's not telling you fear everyone and fear the emperor and fear the brotherhood he's saying honor everyone honor the emperor but fear god be terrified of god in the best possible way in the most healthy way problem with us is we can't see beyond human terror and where we're terrified of someone chasing us down or doing something wrong to us and so we have trouble with it there's a distinction in the hebrew and the greek but some are still going to insist fear means merely reverence. And then you cut that word reverence down too. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, With promises like this that are made to us, let us, let us basically cleanse ourselves from all defilement of body and spirit, reach perfection of holiness in the fear of God. Proverbs eight thirteen: To fear the Lord is, hate, is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord makes men turn from evil. Proverbs 16. The fear of the Lord, again, is, is wisdom. To turn from evil is understanding. One writer said this, We have defanged the tiger of truth. We have tamed the lion. The tragedy of modern faith is that we no longer are capable of being terrified. It's like we're cauterized to terror. The kind of terror that God wants us to have. What is this fear of God? Well, let's just settle it right now. What, what does it mean when Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth? What, what does that mean? I like Wayne Grudem's explanation, so I'll share that with you. He's not the only one with this idea. But it's related, he says, to verse 15. You've got to take verse 17 and look at it with verse 15. Verse 17 says, conduct yourselves in fear. Verse 15 says, Be holy also in all your behavior, all your conduct. So you've got your conduct, your conduct. It's about your behavior. It's about your life. So what he's saying this means is that fear in this context means primarily fear of God's discipline. Right now, right here. Fear of God's discipline in your life. The translation in the NIV actually is, is too comfortable for us reverent fear it suggests the idea of awe in worship but it allows us to avoid the concept of fear of discipline so while awe in worship is good 
if we only see it at that way, we avoid this, the idea of what it's really teaching. A lot of people will dismiss the fear of God as an Old Testament idea. They'll say it has nothing to do with the New Testament, the New Covenant, and they do so to the neglect of a lot of New Testament passages and to, to the impoverishment of their spiritual life. God's discipline and fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude for you to have. You should live fearing God's discipline if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, just fear the wrath of God. But if you're a believer, fear God's discipline. That's good for you. It's the sign of a New Testament church that grows in maturity and that experiences God's blessing. This fear of God, this wanting to avoid God's displeasure and then to incur his discipline on our lives the fear of the lord you look at acts chapter 5 verse 5 and you've got ananias falling down dead he had lied to the holy spirit he had lied to the church and and god judged him for that and killed him for that and it says that great fear fell on all who saw it all who heard about it Verse 11 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. You go on to Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and you got the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoying a time of peace. They were thriving. It says they were living in the fear of the Lord and they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit and they increased in numbers. Ephesians 4.30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's the idea of fearing God here in 1 Peter 1.17. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't displease God. Don't incur His discipline upon you. Philippians 2.12. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why would Paul say in Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth? Because when you set your mind on the things below, you are going to lead yourself into sin. Set your mind on the things above. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. I think probably the, the clearest place we can go as well is in Hebrews chapter 12. You look at that with me. You look over at Hebrews 12, starting at verse 7. We're talking about looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, how he endured the cross, he despised the shame, he's seated at the right hand of God. It tells us to consider him. But then it says this, it is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? So now we're in the realm of a family where a father disciplines his children says if you are left without discipline verse 8 in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons uses the example we had earthly fathers who disciplined us we respected them shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The interesting thing is, the writer of Hebrews doesn't then turn and say, now, since you'll be disciplined by God when you sin, just sin as much as you want and just receive the discipline and you'll get holier because discipline's good for you. That's not what he says. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Code word for do what is right in God's sight so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy. He uses the example of Esau. What he's saying is, stay away from sin. Be afraid 
to grieve the Holy Spirit. Be afraid to, to displease God and incur your discipl- his, his discipline on your life. Some people are going to say, well, you know, the fear of God isn't consistent with loving God. Well, the fear of God is consistent with loving God and knowing He loves us. If it were inconsistent, then you would have to say that Old Testament believers that feared God could not have also loved Him. That's clearly false. Or you'd have to say that God did not love them, which is also clearly false. Instead, the fear of displeasing God is the other side of loving him. It's another way of saying you love him. It goes back to Jesus' words, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. One writer says this about this fear of God. They say it's a humble self-suspicion. A humble self-suspicion. My take on it is we are way too comfortable with ourselves and we are not suspicious of ourselves. We're suspicious of other people when we should be suspicious of ourselves. We look around, especially believers, they're great at this. They look around the church and they look at other people that seem to be doing certain things and they're very suspicious. You should be suspicious of yourself. You should not trust yourself. You should not think that you know it all. You should not think that you have it all wired and everyone else has it wrong. A humble self-suspicion and a fear of offending God. This writer says it might not only consist with assured hope of salvation and with faith and love and spiritual joy, it is their inseparable companion. You want love and joy and peace in your life? You need to fear God. If you don't fear God, you won't have those things in your life the way God wants them to be. What fear does is drowns out all lower fears. You fear God the other fears you have in your life will be drowned out. We have all these fears because we don't fear God. You fear God above all else and you'll notice that you're not so afraid of everything else. What 1 Peter 1 verses 17 through 21 teaches us is that you need to have a healthy fear of God. You need to have a fear of displeasing God and incurring His discipline on your life. Why do you need that fear, though? That's what, what, what Peter explains to us. Why do you need to live in the fear of God? It has to do with who we are. It has to do with what Jesus has done. And it has to do with the calling God has on the lives of believers. And that's what I want us to look at here. Who we are is getting pointed out. What Christ has done is getting pointed out. And God's calling on our lives is getting pointed out. So the first thing I want you to see. That, that this is why you should fear God. First and foremost, if you have a healthy fear of God, you're going to be led to this, and it's going to come from this. It's, it's both and at the same time. Number one, you must have a deep awareness of your need for forgiveness. A deep awareness that you are a sinner. It's, it's about who you are. You ever run across a Christian that doesn't seem to have any conviction of sin they're very frustrating people to be around you want to shake them sometimes and just go what are you doing but the thing is you know you can't convict them of their sin only the holy spirit can so then you start wondering are they a believer do they have the holy spirit who we are is being pointed out in verse 17 It says this, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your exile. You're addressing God as Father, and He is an impartial judge. And everybody has conduct that's out on the table. It's part of the record. Conduct yourself with fear during your exile. This Father who rewards His children according to their obedience does so impartially. So we are not to conduct ourselves proudly. We are, to, we are to be humble and conduct ourselves with fear. And it's not the kind of fear that you would have if you were a prisoner and you were being tortured. It's not the fear you would have for a torturer. It's a fear for a father that a child would have for their parents. They respect. When I was growing up, I feared my dad. He's a very kind man. But I feared my dad. I did not want to displease him. I didn't want to 
you know, soil the family name. I'm, I'm the only boy in my family, so the Shara name is, is on me, you know, and that's, that's a responsibility. And I didn't want to mess that up. So I, I feared my dad growing up. I wanted to please him. I wanted to do what he wanted me to do. And I didn't want to dishonor our family name. Peter is reminding us of this father-child theme in, in this context. In verse 17, but also in verse 14. Children of obedience. Almost as if obedience is the parent. Very appropriate. The nature of a child is to want to imitate and please their father, their parent. So we should, as believers, should be want to be like Jesus, want to imitate God because He is our Father and because His, His holiness, His moral excellence is inherently beautiful. It's desirable to want to be like God. If you address as Father is also code word for being a Christian. Peter is saying that, he's assuming that you're calling on God out of desperate dependence. We like to think of that word in the Bible, Abba. We say, Abba, Father. We like to think of, of, of us sitting in a nice, nice leather, comfy chair, sitting in God's lap, enjoying a football game. When it's, it's not really that. It's more like one of my kids coming in in the middle of the night when, they've been, when they're afraid or they've had a, a bad dream or they just threw up all over the place and they need to be comforted. The cry, Abba, Father is a cry of desperate dependence. And what Peter is pointing to is he's saying, you're praying. Do you pray? And if you pray, what do you pray? Far too often my prayers are just same-o, same-o. I don't even know if that's going to come true, and I'm praying things that I don't think will happen. If we're honest, too many of our prayers are just like checking off the box. We don't pray dependently. We don't pray desperate for God. Address as father. You know that moment that you realize that, that your parents fed you and clothed you and gave you shelter? Have you had that moment in your life when, when you realize that? Some of your kids are maybe a little too young. You'll get there. But the idea is you, you realized at a moment in a period of time that your parents laid down their lives for you. You even, you see a mom bring a baby into church and you, it strikes you. My parents did that with me. They carried me around. They didn't throw me on my head. You know, I'm, I'm here today and I'm clothed and in my right mind because my parents took care of me. When I was vulnerable, when I was weak, when I couldn't do anything for myself. You know that off of your father, fear of God doesn't drive you away from him. It actually drives you into his, into his loving, compassionate, caring arms. A father's role in our society is often trivialized, is often put down. Men are seen as oafs or dorks or guys who are unable to do anything. Or they're seen as, you know, hyper-controlling. They're, they're pictured in, in such a way that, that fear, healthy reverent fear for a father becomes a novelty. The first people who heard this, and by the way, they didn't have their own copies of the Bible. Praise God we do. But they were gathered together as the church and they came together and they listened to the word of God being read to them. The first people that heard this, they were living in a, in a culture where a father was higher than the judge because the father had been given the role to teach and to admonish and to train the child that was considered more important in those days than the judge giving out rewards and punishments there was a saying in the Roman world patria potestas the power of the father he had the power of life and death over his kids our heavenly father is to be honored and feared we, we do not want to to displease our heavenly father Peter also says he's the judge he's the judge now when we think judge now we get serious we get serious about that if you've ever stood before a judge in a court of law 
It would be, only a fool would, would, would smirk or, or slink in or just kind of slouch in front of the judge and go, I don't really care what you have to say about me. No, you stand at attention and you're thinking, this person has my life in their hands and they're going to make a decision about me. It is sobering. It, is, it makes you serious. God is holy and He cannot tolerate any sin. And because of that, it, sin is repulsive to His holiness. You know that God is the judge and that He judges with absolute fairness. That is, that is reason to want to live a life that pleases God. That fear is not dread. It is not anxiety. It is the healthy response of a person who knows they are in the presence of God. Fear before God is a sign of spiritual health. Gratitude. Like I said, only a fool would joke in front of a judge in a court of law. They would be sober-minded. They would be serious. We rightly call God our Father because Jesus instructed us to pray that way. But don't let your familiarity with God cut down his holiness he is a holy God Peter had already said in verse 14 don't be conformed to the lusts that were yours in your ignorance don't go back to your former way of life well the reason he made such a command is because he knew that in the hearts and minds of, of believers sinful desires still remained they still had some power in the hearts of true Christians but he also knew at the same time that the Holy Spirit's regenerating work had broken the power the dominating force of those sinful desires and that it is possible for christians to live with a measure of victory over sin now not to create any sort of pride on a believer's part it should it should create more humility you go to revelation um, chapter 2 and jesus is is talking about casting jezebel into a sick bed and afflicting her children with great tribulation and how that was going to be an unmistakable sign to everyone that God sees everything here's what Jesus says he's basically saying nothing slips under the radar here he says behold I will throw her in a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation unless they repent of her works I will strike the children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the heart and mind whoa 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 whoa, whoa. don't go so fast Go back. Who will know? All the churches. All the churches will know. What will all the churches know? That God is the one who searches the mind and the heart. And he says, I will give to each one of you as your works deserve. Let me just say this too. If you accepted Christ in 1985 at the Billy Graham Crusade at Anaheim Stadium, and you're living like hell now, you're not getting a free pass. Why? Because God knows your kidneys. Let me repeat that. God knows your kidneys. Yes, he knows you. You don't know where your kidneys are, but God knows your kidneys. And how do I know this? I know this because of the verse I just read. Jesus says, Jesus says, I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And that Greek word for mind literally means kidneys. That'd be a weird translation. The kidneys and the heart. But it, it, it describes the innermost, most secretive, most serious thoughts of your heart. Things that you think are hidden from everyone else are seen with total clarity by the Lord Jesus. It's like God has x-ray, sonar, ultrasound vision. Every motive of your mind, every fantasy in your heart, every fear, every emotion, every doubt everything that you're deliberating about every decision you make are the focus of Christ's penetrating eyes you don't believe me Hebrews 4.13 says no creature is hidden from his sight all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him we mu- to whom we must give an account the scriptures say the Lord is in his holy temple the Lord is on his heavenly throne he observes everyone on earth his eyes examine them So we think about who we are and we realize in the presence of our heavenly father and this impartial judge we are toast 
unless we have forgiveness in Christ. We know we need to be changed, to be converted. We know we need ongoing cleansing from sin. We call upon God as our Father, and we know our desperate need. We're fully dependent on Him. You pray then humbly, you pray expectantly. A lot of what Peter talks about can be illustrated by his own life. I love that about Peter. I love Peter. Peter, when Jesus was calling him, here's Jesus calling this fisherman who hadn't caught anything all night. And Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus because Jesus says, why don't you cast the net on this side of the, of the boat? And Jesus is like, who do you think you are? I'm the fisherman. And the next thing you know, Peter is standing in the middle of all these fish that Jesus got for him. And he falls down and just says, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Because in the presence of, of, of holy Jesus, Peter realized how unholy he was. I think what you need to hear loud and clear is that you can have, and do have if you're a Christian, forgiveness in Christ. You need to have this shouted at you. The first thing you need to do, though, is acknowledge your sinfulness and again and again and again do it. Today we're going to have an opportunity in a few moments to come to the table. And isn't it interesting that when we come to this table, we acknowledge our sins more readily because we're realizing, we're remembering what Jesus did because of our sins. Second thing I want you to see here is what Jesus did. It's like Peter is shining this huge spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? It says he ransomed us. He ransomed us. Jews would think of, of, of being rescued out of slavery to Egypt. Gentiles would think about buying back a slave. What Jesus did is ransomed. Uh, you, you will have a deep appreciation for Christ's shed blood, his sufficiency, that you would ransom by his blood when you come to faith in him. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. What do people kill for more than anything else? Silver and gold. You had this futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, this vain life, this empty, devoid of power, lacking in content, non-productive, useless, dead, worthless, fruitless, aimless, no value. He's taken you from your former life and you've been redeemed. You've been purchased with the price, the blood of Christ. The price paid was the atoning work of God's Son that's caused to fear God. God, ownership of His servants, freeing them from sin and death. We should love the precious blood of Christ. Peter says that you were redeemed with precious blood, the blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. You should love the precious blood of Christ. Not like you love chocolate or your favorite pillow, by the way. More like you love your spouse or your kids or your, your dearest loved ones. And far more than that. What if you had been rescued by a person you never met? Let's say a lifeguard rescued you at the beach as you were drowning and, and that lifeguard lost their life as you were being saved. You would love that lifeguard till your dying moment. You would, you would live your life in light of, of theirs. Here's Christ's shed blood at the cross, this substitution, this precious blood, this valuable blood, this costly necessary blood that Jesus gave his life that we would openly acknowledge that God is holy and that we by nature are dead in our sins apart from Christ we're standing under his just condemnation but what we do is we reject our former futility and we rejoice in the new life we have in Christ you, you almost want to shout it out I've been ransomed by Christ's blood I want to show you one more thing in, in this passage. And it's, it's the idea of God's calling on a believer's life. The reason to fear God is because of who you are and how much forgiveness you need. And, and the reason to, to, to fear God is because of what Christ has done in ransoming lost sinners. 
It makes it so clear. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God's plan A all along was to save a people for himself like this. And then he was made manifest in these times for your sake, who through him are believers. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So the thing you need to see is that God has a calling on your life. A a mission bigger than your happiness. A mission bigger than your comfort. A deep abiding hope and faith in God. Having, Having a hope and faith in God. It says you through him, verse 21, through him you are believers in God. And God raised him from the dead. There's the resurrection of Christ. And, and gave him glory. Immeasurable, beautiful, awestruck, awesome glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. And don't miss that, that little word, in. In God. You live by God's power as a believer. You're saved by God's power. You live in God's power. We're coming to the table in a moment. You're talking about faith and hope. I think our problem is sometimes we see ourselves so big and everything else so small. So we see God as small too. When I was a kid, we'd go to my grandma and grandpa's house in Joshua Tree, and at night we'd look up at the stars through my grandpa's telescope. And of course, I had to have my own toy telescope. And I loved to do this with my telescope. Turn it around and, and look at people and see how small they looked. That's how some of us are living our Christian lives. We're so big in our own eyes and everyone else is so small and God becomes so small. And even when we get brought low, we're still too full of ourselves. You know, no matter how terrible a thing happens in life, we live in a country where the civil authorities of our government have said it's okay to kill babies on demand and it's okay to have no-fault divorce. So you can get out of anything you want. Because the civil authorities say so? There's lots of other things like that. It doesn't matter if our culture encourages licentiousness or sexual promiscuity. No matter that you live in a world drenched in ungodliness. What a sinful world allows has nothing to do with a Christian's life. You're called to obey God, not traditions, not, not even, well, hey, it's legal so I can do this. Not if it disobeys God. Not if it displeases Him. Not if it puts you in line to be under His discipline. I think the most difficult thing for us to do in our Christian life is to remember to whom we belong and what it means to say these words. Jesus is Lord. I think many of us have, have a huge misunderstanding of what it means to say Jesus is Lord. Yesu ha kirios. Jesus is Lord. If He is your Lord and Master, then you are to obey Him rather than the impulses of your flesh, rather than what other people give you permission to do, or whether you want to pattern yourself after the pagan world around you. R.C. Sproul was talking about Justin Martyr when he addressed his um, apology, uh, defense for the Christian faith to the Emperor Antonius Pius. And he gave the normal defense of the truth from the word of God for Christianity. But he also told Pius this. He says, look at the lives of believers. He challenged him to examine the lives of Christians and observe their purity. He says, look at the word of God and look at the lives of believers. If we're honest, we can't do both today. If we're honest, no Christian apologist would use the purity of believers' lives as an argument for Christianity in our culture today, and that should bring us to tears. It's a sad day indeed for the church of Jesus Christ. You need a worldview that has been changed. Church's greatest need is each member's holiness. The murals of Pompeii wouldn't make us blush. We don't even know how far from pure we are. We are dealing in shades of gray and brown and black, and we think we are dealing in white. You see, when I fear displeasing God and incurring His discipline, 
I live more like a chicken. Circumspect. You know how a chicken walks? Always looking in front of them. I would do it, but I'd probably mess my neck up. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And let me just say this. There's a pastor... You probably heard of him. He's on the radio all the time, Alistair Begg. He said this, so if you have a problem, you have to go ask him. But he said this to his congregation. He goes, some of you are half Christians. I don't know how that's possible. But here's what he was saying. You've, you've believed in the Lord Jesus and you've repented of your sins, but you've never been baptized or had your worldview changed. Now, next week we're having a baptism. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, whether you've been a believer for one day or 40 years and you've never been baptized you're living in disobedience to God I want to see you in the water next week I am serious Jesus says get baptized I don't really care if you're afraid of water fear God more than the water oh I don't like to have water on my face plenty of things I don't like I don't like getting dunked in front of everybody in a pool three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we will dunk you thoroughly but there's something else there's so many people who said oh I believed in the Lord Jesus I repented of my sins and I got baptized boom done woo problem is they never had their worldview changed usually because they disobey the word of God or ignore the word of God Romans 6 talks about a baptism that isn't in water. It talks about being baptized into Christ Jesus, where your whole worldview, your whole life, everything about you is reoriented and changed and rearranged the way God wants it. Some of you need that baptism. And I'm not talking about the second blessing, charismatic baptism that is not biblical. I'm talking about being baptized into Jesus, meaning Jesus is your life. Colossians 3. One through four, read those. Read those verses. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you'll also be revealed with him in glory. It's because you are saying, uh, it's because you're fixing your eyes on, on what is above and not, not what's on earth. Go read those. We gotta finish, we gotta get to the table here. And uh, let me just say that we know why we need to fear God. Because of who we are. We need forgiveness. We're sinners. But we know we need to fear God because of what Jesus did. And as a believer, you get ransomed by his blood. But we also need to fear God because we have a calling on our lives that's beyond our happiness, beyond our comfort. And it has to do with obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, obeying the word of God, staying away from sin, helping each other do that. We're coming to the table. And um, Peter talked about a lamb unblemished, didn't he? Peter talked about the lamb without spot. Usher's going to start taking the bread and passing it out. Hold on to it. We'll eat it together. If you're a Christian, this table is for you. It's to remember the lamb without spot, the lamb without blemish. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that when when that church would have been gathered, the different churches, and they're reading this letter. Peter would have taken them back to the Old Testament celebration of the Passover, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. They would be reminded of this celebration of the Passover where the angel of death would pass over the homes on which the blood had been put on the doorposts. Marked by the blood of the lamb. When God saw the blood, his judgment would pass over and pass by. And what God said is, don't ever forget what I've done. That's what he said, don't ever forget that. So there are people today that are basically remembering the Passover and completely missing Jesus. There are people that are, that are doing it religiously and self-righteously and 
traditionally and, and it's empty. Because that Passover, that blood was pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ. It was pointing to the lamb, as Peter put it, the lamb without blemish or spot. See, the celebration reaches its pinnacle, its, its highest point, its, its zenith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of churches actually do this every, every time they gather. And some people are like, oh, that just becomes a ritual. Who says? We do it once a month, so it needs to mean something for us. Even in this, even once a month can become a, oh, we, we do this. And not realizing that Jesus said, don't ever forget. Some of us won't ever forget 9-11. Remember all those signs, never forget? You need to never forget Jesus. Because he punished sin at the cross so that we might live. So Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed, this, he took this bread and he broke it in front of his disciples and said, this is my body which is for you. And he was giving them something very easy to remember. It wasn't magically turning into his body. That's such a lie. It is, it is bread that you're going to eat and chew. But it's at this table that we commune with the Lord Jesus Christ who is present with his church and who lives within his church. If you're a Christian, this is for you to take. If you're not a Christian, I would say this. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus, you need to remember, you need to know that he died on the cross paying the penalty for sin. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He is coming back. He is coming back in judgment for those who disbelieve, who do not believe. And he is coming back in blessing for those who believe. Don't take this bread unless you know the Lord Jesus. And don't, don't, uh, don't abstain if you've sinned this week. Take a bigger piece of bread if you've sinned this week. I, I love the fact that when we come to this table, we know we need to confess our sins because we're remembering. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. God forbid that we would ever come to this table and say, Lord, thank you that I'm not like other people. And then we would rehearse all the things we've done so that God would be pleased with us. God forbid that we would ever come to this table with harboring sin in our hearts that's either unconfessed or hidden. On the Day of Atonement, remember they would be thinking about this. They would have been thinking about this, the Day of Atonement. What would happen on the Day of Atonement? The priest would take the blood of the animal that had been killed. And he would take it into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. And he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. Signifying the throne of God. What would happen when they did that over and over and over again is the sins of the people were covered. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus entered the holy place once for all to make atonement for sin. I'm going to say it again. If you're not a Christian, you've 
got to have Jesus. Don't fool yourself. Don't fool us. God's the one who sees. God didn't make the command to make a ritual. So many people miss the blood of Christ. The blood was shed once, once for all. That blood points to the blood of Christ that's precious. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, we, we know that the testimony of your word is that life without Jesus is a life that is empty. And we try to fill our lives up with so many activities so that we don't need to think about Jesus. Even as believers, we can miss this. Lord God, may this mark a turning point in, in our lives that we would not take you lightly that we would truly fear you that we would we would know who we are and what we're like and run to you and know what you've done and that you've ransomed us that we would live beyond ourselves that we would live more more for your glory and and less for our comfort lord may we gird up the loins of our minds as peter says and think about your call on our lives you have redeemed us with precious blood, the blood of Christ, that we may walk not as the world walks, but as the redeemed children of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.